We never get too old to be tempted. We must always be praying, Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on. This is the twelfth message in a series from the book of Genesis. I trust you're learning and growing as we move through this remarkable book that begins the canon of Scripture. Sometimes age does strange things to us. Isaac does not seem to be as strong in faith at the end of his life as he was at the beginning. Now that concerns me because I'm getting older and so are you. There is an old saying, great souls are like mountains, they always attract the storms. And if that be true, then we need to take heed to what the life of Isaac says to all of us. We must be careful with temptation. We never get too old to be tempted. Sin is consent to the temptations. When there is no acquiescence, there is no sin. But sin is consent to the temptations. Of all essences, the devil likes acquiescence the best. And it doesn't matter how old we are. Now back in the horse and buggy days, I read of a man who desired to hire a coachman and gave instructions to those who came to be interviewed for that particular job. What he wanted these applicants to do was to drive the horse and buggy as near to the edge of a precipice without danger of going over as possible. So the first one drove the horse and buggy within one yard of the edge of the precipice. The second one drove within one foot of the edge of the precipice. The third applicant was an unusual fellow because he drove it as far away from the edge as was possible, and he got the job, because that was what that man wanted, an individual who would not see how close he could come, but how far away could he get for the safety of his passengers. One parishioner, after being converted from a life of hard drinking, would walk a full city block out of his way to and from work to avoid passing the old saloon where he used to spend his time and his money. He did not want to slip back. He understood the premise upon which I speak today. You're never too old to be tempted, and you are never too old in the faith to be tempted. Heaven is not reached by a single bound, but we build of the ladder by which we rise from the old holy earth to the vaulted skies, and we mount to its summit round by round. Now, when we drive a car in today's society, we have to learn something or we're going to be a victim. 
What we must learn is to drive everybody's car at the same time you're driving your own. In other words, you have to be on the lookout for what's to the right, to the left, in front and behind, right? That's what all those mirrors are for. I cannot drive without a mirror on the right side of the car because I want to know what's out there. And there's a mirror on the left, and there's one inside to let me know what's behind, and I try to keep close tabs on what's on either side and in front and behind. It is necessary to drive the other person's car. You must keep in view all the vehicles on the street and act accordingly, or you're going to be in difficulty. I think that's an apt illustration of what is necessary in the Christian life. You've got to be aware of what's happening all around you. And one thing you must certainly be aware of is that the devil doesn't take your conversion sitting down. He just doesn't sit back and say, well, they've made a choice, so that's it. I've lost them forever. No, sir. The temptations increase after conversion. That's why we want people to get the tape that we've made and the booklet that we have available and get into the new converts class that's now meeting in my study at this very moment and into the doctrine class that Pastor Youngland teaches at 11 o'clock so that they can know how to stand against the wiles of the devil. We must put on the whole armor of God that we may be protected in front and behind and on either side. He will not take what's happening spiritually sitting down. In fact, the closer you get to Jesus, the harder the temptation will be. Jesus was tempted before he ever preached a sermon, before he ever healed the sick. He was forced into the wilderness of temptation by the Spirit to prove that he was who he said he was, the Son of God without guile, without sin, and able to conquer every temptation that would ever come to man. And thank God he did. So there are two things in the life of Isaac that we want to see today. The first we title Facing Temptation. And we need to go back into the 26th chapter to get the whole picture. We could not take time to read all of the verses that surround this message, but I will be referring to them as we move along. In the 26th chapter and the first five verses, you will read how that Isaac started toward Egypt. He was going back into Egypt. But God in his grace stopped him. And verse 2 of chapter 26 says, Go not down into Egypt. Human nature is much the same from generation to generation. Abraham had gone down, and when he was in Egypt, he took Hagar as his wife and started a problem that continues to this very day. Isaac dwelt according to Chapter 26 at Gerar, G-E-R-A-R. And in chapter 10, verse 19 of Genesis, we learn where Gerar was. 
It was on the borderline between Egypt and Canaan land. Now, here is Isaac in his later years. We would say he should have known better. Heading down to Egypt, God stops him at Gerar and says, Don't go down. But to even be at the borderline is dangerous. Because it was there at Gerar he repeated his father's sin. Look at verses 6 through 11. He lied. He said his wife was his sister. The place of the borderline is a dangerous place. He did the same thing his father had done. How tragic it is to live on the border between Egypt and Canaan, or if we may put it this way, between heaven and hell, between serving God and serving the devil. Do you want to know why Jesus instituted the ordinances of baptism and communion? So we would get off the borderline, that's why. So we would have to make a public declaration of our faith in Jesus Christ to get away from the borderline. Isaac had three things happen to him because of living on the borderline. The first was the loss of blessing. He suffered the loss of God's favor because of living on the borderline, and so will we. If we evaluate the promises of God as though they were an option on the borderline, we will suffer the loss of blessing. The promises of blessing in tithing, for example. The promises of blessing in trusting him for healing or for whatever is needed in life. If we live on the borderline, there will be a tremendous loss of what God wants to do in our lives. He had a loss of testimony there. How could the king ever believe him now that it has been discovered that his sister was really his wife? And this man looked out of his window one day and saw Isaac caressing his bride. And he knew immediately when he saw them making love from his window that Rebecca was not his sister. You don't kiss your sister like that. So he lost his testimony in Gerar. And that's what happens to us. When we share a smutty story or we think we have to compromise in the cocktail hour, or whatever, a thousand ways we could compromise our testimony and lose it because of living on the borderline. He got a rebuke by that heathen king. Here was Isaac, the promised son, and had to be rebuked by a heathen king. It's kind of the way I look at America today, that God has raised up and blessed so tremendously 
And yet we are suffering the rebuke of the heathen today because of our sins and our lack of faith, living on the borderline. Oh, may God send us a revival that will shake us out of that and stir us to seek his face again like before. In Gerar, he received material blessings. When he dwelt in Beersheba, verses 23 through 25, he built an altar and the spiritual man was renewed as he called upon the name of the Lord. It's an interesting comparison. In Gerar, he had material things when he came back to Beersheba. He built an altar and he called upon the name of the Lord. As long as he was away from Canaan, he would have conflict. When he went back to Beersheba, God met him and gave him peace with the enemy. It will happen in your life. It will happen in anyone's life. When we refuse the temptation at whatever age to side up with the world and to live on the borderline and say, I'm not going to step out of the church, but I want to be in the world just a little bit too. I want to have the best of both worlds, and it just can't be. Sir, you have to make up your mind. Are you going down to Egypt, or are you going to live in Canaan? Are you going to dwell at Gerar, or are you going to build an altar at Beersheba? You have to decide where you're going to live. What happens will depend upon your decision. The temptation is to try to do it our way, moving either into Egypt or on the borderline, not to take God at his word and to trust him without hesitation. I like stories from history past, you probably have recognized, and out of the Civil War comes a story that illustrates this thing of temptation. A steamer stopped at a landing on the Mississippi River during the Civil War, and a planter came to the captain of the steamer and said to him, I will give you $10,000 to take a boatload of cotton to New Orleans. The captain replied to the planter, I cannot do it. I have strict orders not to allow a single bale of cotton on board this steamer. The offer was increased by the planter, 20,000, 30,000. The planter followed the captain on board the ship as he tried to walk away from him and kept offering higher amounts until it reached $100,000. My orders are strict, said the captain. The planter then replied, then I will give you $110,000. When he said that, the captain of that steamer rose to his feet, his face hardened, his hand went into a drawer of his desk, out came a revolver, leveling it at the planter. He said, get off this boat or I will kill you. You are getting too close to me. Oh, how many times have we experienced something like that? The only problem, we didn't pull the revolver out of the drawer. We listened. 
We heeded. It looked so attractive in the natural. We can even say at times, surely God must be in this. And yet know in our hearts it's contrary to his word and contrary to his plan, contrary to his favor. We must be aware that temptation will keep coming at us and coming at us. It will keep knocking at our door until we let it in, unless we let it know that it will have no part of us. Get away. You're getting too close. That's the way to face temptation, like the old captain of the steamer faced that offer. Now, the second part of this story deals with the flesh versus the spirit, chapter 27. The indication of conditions is in the 28th verse. And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison. Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, here you have division in the home. One loved Esau, the other Jacob. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't love the other, but their favor was toward one, and that's dangerous. So we see a declining father. We see a declining father physically. He was about 137 years old, the interesting thing is that Isaac lived to be 180, yet he acts here like he's about to die. Isn't that interesting? He lived 43 more years. And yet he's saying, oh, before I die, before I die, do this thing for me. There are a lot of people that die many years before their time. Why, every day is a day of possible catastrophe. I may have a wreck today. I may suffer a heart attack today. The doctor may tell me today I have cancer. They live every day in a sense of death. What a tragic way to live. So here is a man dying physically, though he lived 43 more years. We see a declining father spiritually. He shows impatience in wanting to give Esau a blessing. Now, in chapter 25, verse 23, God had said to Isaac very plainly, the older shall serve the younger. Now, how could he forget that? That seems to me to be quite plain. How could a man of Isaac's stature Forget what God said about his sons. The older will serve the younger. And yet, here is a man showing his impatience. He wants to give Esau a blessing. Why? Before he dies. And he wasn't going to die yet. He's moving ahead of God. He's taking things into his own hands. He won't wait on God. Which is probably the biggest problem any of us have in serving God, waiting on God. Do you know something? God has all eternity to work out his plan. He's in no big rush. 
And we ought not to be so uptight about the events of today that we wring our hands and we get ulcers and nervous disorders. God has everything under control. God sees things from beginning to ending. A day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. Isaac, sit down and wait on God. Don't die spiritually too. But he wants to work it out himself. He depends on his senses. You see, he feels Jacob and thinks he's Esau. He smells Jacob and thinks he's Esau. He eats the meat and says it must be Esau's venison. He is depending on his senses rather than upon his spirit. Oh, how our young people battle this temptation, but it feels so good. That's the way it is when they puff on the joint, or they take their first pill. Oh, it feels so good. Wow, could anything be like this? Depending on their senses, and then it moves into the sexual area, and they say, everybody's doing it, and it feels so good. Only to die spiritually and sometimes physically because they take things into their own hands and don't listen to God. Oh, the battle between flesh and spirit. It will always be there. Paul shouted for all of us to hear, the things that I would, I do not, and the things that I would not, those I do. What was he saying? There's a constant battle in all of us, the flesh versus the Spirit. My dear friends, I'm here to tell you today you must listen to the Spirit, not to the senses. In a day when everybody's appealing to your senses, you must listen to the Spirit. This toothpaste will make you just feel so good all day long. Nonsense. There isn't one ever created that will make your mouth a heaven all day long. It will become a chicken coop before noon. There isn't such a panacea as that. But yet that's the way they picture it and all of the Tobacco ads show these healthy, robust people soaring up over the hillside. Doesn't show them bent over the gutter spewing out their venom. Always appealing to the flesh. And God sits up there in his heaven. Oh, my children, if you just listen to me. You'll just hearken to me. If you will just do the will of your Father which is in heaven, what blessing and what happiness. But we like to take it into our own hands. Isaac did it. As great a man as Isaac was and with such power and faith, yet he declined physically and spiritually. And now we look at his 
His mother, we have a doubting mother here. Not just Isaac, but we've got Rebecca in the problem too. She had been told that Jacob would receive God's blessing. That should have been enough. But Rebecca schemes and plots to make sure. We think we've got to help God. Isn't that something? God isn't big enough to take care of himself and to fulfill his promises. We've got to help God. So Rebecca goes to work. She paid very dearly for what she did. You know that she never saw Jacob again. She never laid her eyes on her favorite son again, following the story of Genesis 27. Never again. She died before Jacob ever got reunited with Esau. What a price to pay. Verses 43 through 45 reveal her intent. She thought that Jacob would be with Laban a few days. Read it. That's what she thought. You go with Laban a few days, Uncle Laban, and then you'll come back and Esau's wrath will be appeased and Isaac will be okay by then. Besides this, never seeing Jacob again, Esau acted deliberately to hurt his mother. He went out and chose him wicked wives. He deliberately hurt his mother because of what she had done. And for 20 years, Esau had bitter trials because of this doubting mother who tried to set God up, who tried to help God out, who tried to force God into playing his hand before his time. Oh, what penalty when we don't listen to the spirit and cater to the flesh. Years before, she had prayed now she leans on carnal plans and says, I'll put it together. It's like the Christian businessman who finds things aren't going so well, and he says, I, I must do this the way my competition does it. So he begins to scheme, and he misleads just a little bit in advertising to get the business rolling again. Oh, a tragedy when we take it into our own hands and don't put the blood of Jesus over that business and over our hearts and say whatever comes, Lord, I'm going to be honest and fair and right before you. Whether I lose it all or not, I will trust you. I will not do it the way man does it. That's what God is saying to us through this passage. Then we have a deceiving son, a declining father, a doubting mother, and a deceiving son. He listened to his mother instead of to God. Jacob is a perfect picture of the hypocrite. He goes before his father, his voice and his hands do not agree. Isaac says it's the voice of Jacob, but the hands of Esau. In other words, what he says and what he does are two different things. Isn't that a picture of the hypocrite and of carnality and of the flesh? He tells three lies to his father. He says, I am Esau. Now, I have never in my life tried to tell anybody I'm somebody else. That just, that's beyond me. I'm Mason Youngwood. You, you may not, that's where I am. Isn't that, that's incredible, isn't it? 
But that's what he did. That's how far they had gone into the carnal, fleshly realm. I am Esau. That must have been hard for him to spit out. Then he said, I have done according as thou badest me. <laughs> His mother did it all. He didn't do anything. What a cook she must have been, by the way, making goat taste like venison. Boy, she must have been something else. That's exactly what she did. She made that goat taste like venison. And then, and then Jacob said to his dad, eat of my venison, and all the time he knew it was goat. Boy, we are sneaky people. The flesh and the spirit war. I'm Esau. I've done according as thou badest me. Eat of my venison. And then in verse 27, it's just, it's the Old Testament Judas situation. He kisses his father. It was a deceitful kiss. Now, did Jacob pay for his sin? Hmm. You've read on, haven't you? You know what happened when he went to Laban's house? Laban deceived him and changed his wages many times until old Jacob was saying, I wonder if there's anyone I can trust. Now, that's the way we are. We don't mind doing it, but when it comes to having it done to ourselves, we say, I wonder if there's anyone I can believe in anymore. Oh, did he pay even when he thought he was going to marry the woman of his dreams, he woke up the next morning found out it was a different one. It was Leah and not Rachel. And he had to work seven more years, and that made 14 years for the woman of his dreams. So what are you in a hurry about, sir? <laughs> Ma'am? And isn't it interesting that when you move down to the 37th chapter of Genesis and the 31st verse, Jacob's own sons kill a kid and smear its blood on Joseph's coat to deceive their father. Is the Bible an inspired book or not? Be sure your sins will find you out. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. You talk about a line of illustration. A deceitful father, a deceitful son. And now, years later, when the second generation has the third generation, the third generation deceives the second generation. And Jacob lives for 20 more years in sorrow because Joseph is dead, as far as he knows. Oh, the pain we bear. The song says, oh, the needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Then we have a despairing brother, the whole family, declining father, doubting mother, deceiving son, and a despairing brother. Hebrews 12, 17 indicates that Esau sought the blessing with tears, yet found no place for real repentance for his sins. What does that mean? It means that he was sorry for what he had lost, but not sorry for his sins. My friend, that's the place that some of you are at today. You're sorry for what you've lost. 
they're not sorry enough to turn from the sin. And if there's any story in the Bible that says turn from the sin, be sorry enough to go the other direction, it's this story, because the penalty is passed on from generation to generation to generation. There must be repentance. You can stop that cycle. If you will turn to the Lord with repentance that brings godly sorrow with it and determine you are going to start a new day. In the African bush, the leopard catches and destroys the antelope through curiosity. When I was out in Africa and went through one of those great game reserves, I would see skeletal pieces sometimes along the way. Learned that Oh, it was an antelope or one of those uh, wildebeests of East Africa. And in inquiring how a lion or a leopard would catch the prey, I learned that they do it in a very sneaky way. The beast conceals himself in the bush. And when the antelope passes near, the leopard gently waves the tall grass. He moves enough so that the top of the grass begins to move and the antelope comes closer to inspect the movement of the grass. And in a split second, the leopard is upon the antelope and has its prey. How subtle is temptation. It wiggles the grass, then springs upon us as we draw close to it. I don't think Samson ever expected to lie in the lap of Delilah, but he saw the wiggling of the grass. What is God's message to us out of this passage today? In a word, it's simply this, allow God to have his way. Had Isaac and Rebekah not taken sides with their two boys, had they continued to pray about matters as in earlier days, things would have been different. All of them suffered because of unbelief and disobedience. My friends, hear me this morning. We are never too old to be tempted. We are never too old to take things into our own hands and say, God, we have waited long enough. I'm going to do this myself. But do not yield to that temptation. Pull the gun out of the drawer and level it at the enemy and say, you're getting too close to me. Depart from me. James 4, 7 gives us the key. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. But you must submit to God first. Do it his way. Now, if you're with us today and you've yielded to the temptation, I have a final word for you. Reverend A. Dixon was a great Baptist preacher down in the hills of Virginia years ago. And he used to tell a story out of his own boyhood and out of his own area where he grew up. It had to do with one of these one-room schoolhouses. You remember those? Everybody was in one room, one teacher, 
And this particular group of boys had beat up every teacher that had come had it, and had sent the last one off, bleeding, broken. And a young, skinny teacher, gray eyes, applied for the job, and the head schoolmaster said, do you know what you're getting into? They've beaten up every teacher that's come. He said, I'll risk it. The first day of school, he stood before those boys and big old Tom back there, nudged his neighbor, and he said, I can take him all by myself. I won't need any help. The new teacher said, now, I want a good school, and in order to have a good school, we've got to have rules. So he said, I want you to tell me what you think the rules ought to be, and I'll put them on the board. And they began to cry out, no lying, no stealing. And he wrote 10 things on the board that they cried from their seat. Now, he said, in order to emphasize the importance of keeping these rules, we must have a punishment. What will the punishment be? And immediately they cried out, ten lashes on the bare back of an offender. We said, that's pretty harsh. Can you abide by it? They all said, yes, and he wrote it down, ten lashes on the bare back of the offender. The first offense was the stealing of Big Tom's lunch. A little skinny, scrawny kid by the name of Jimmy was the culprit. Jimmy stole Big Tom's lunch. The penalty was ten stripes on the back of little Jimmy. So the next morning, the teacher stood before his class, reiterated the rules, said, Jimmy, come forward. Jimmy walked forward with a huge coat buttoned up around his neck, bigger than he was. The teacher said, Jimmy, did you take the lunch? Yes. Why did you do it? He said, my father died when I was younger. My mother tries to keep us in food, but... We're very, very poor, and I was so hungry that I took the lunch because of hunger. The teacher didn't want to do what he had to do, but he said, take off your coat, Jimmy. Oh, he said, teacher, please don't make me take off my coat. Please don't. Jimmy, you have to. It's the rule. He unbuttoned it slowly, took it off, and there was a bare back and a bare chest, no shirt little strings holding his pants up where suspenders ought to be. The teacher said, Jimmy, where's your shirt? He said, I only have one, and my mother's washing it today, so I borrowed my brother's big coat to cover up from the cold. The teacher took the stick that he would administer the penalty with, when suddenly Big Tom sprang from his seat and said, Teacher, teacher, if it's all right with you, I'd like to take Jimmy's punishment for him. The teacher said, Well, there is a provision whereby a substitute can take the punishment. Take off your shirt, Tom. And that teacher laid five blows on the back of Tom and broke the stick. 
buried his head in his hands and said to himself, how can I go on with this? When he heard sobbing from the students and he looked up to see big Tom with Jimmy's hands and arms around his neck saying, Big Tom, I will love you forever for taking my punishment for you. I will love you till you die because you were willing to take my punishment for me. And the whole student body sat there and wept. My friends, long ago, a big brother by the name of Jesus stepped forward and said, I'll take their punishment when they err, when they fall, when they sin, when they compromise. I will take their punishment. And the Father said, there is a provision, a way whereby there can be a substitute. There was in Israel a lamb, a goat, a pigeon, whatever they could bring. Now, once and for all, a sacrifice for all sins. And Jesus bled and died that you might be forgiven and not have to go out of church under a guilt and a burden of sin. I don't care how old you are or how young you are, if you've been tempted and yielded to the temptation, there is an altar and there is a sacrifice. Come to it today in Jesus' name. Let's stand together, please. No one leaving the building, holding steady in God's presence. It is the moment when I must trust the Holy Spirit to speak to you and to give you the courage to make a move toward God. There are some of you here today who have tried to maintain a Christian life, but you have sinned and you need to repent of sin. There are some of you here who have never received Jesus into your life. You need to receive him today. Tomorrow may be too late, but you do have today. There are some of you that have been tempted and tempted again and you've yielded. And you need to break with that and come to him who is willing to take your punishment. If you don't come to him today, you must take the punishment and it's eternal separation from God. But don't, don't wait. Don't wait. Come today. And will you come? My associates are here, loving men who really care about you. If you need to receive Jesus into your life, come. Get out into an aisle and come down here. I have material I want to give you. We want to pray with you. If you've been tempted and you've yielded and you need to repent, don't stay back there. Get down here. I don't care if you've been a member of this church 50 years. You know there's sin in your life. You need to repent of it. Get down here as we sing this old hymn. Just step out and let Jesus Christ minister to you today.